And 1 Corinthians is a book written to the Corinthian church by Paul, the apostle, and he uh, wanted the church to be committed daily uh, to their walking and believing and, and living out their faith. And so today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it deals with the challenges of conflict within the church. Conflict at home, conflict at work, but especially conflict within the church. And so when I was in Virginia, I was in Virginia as a pastor uh, for almost seven to ten years. I can't remember exactly. It went by pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, but while I was a pastor there, uh, I had the privilege of working with the Fortis Group, which is a, a leadership team that trains and teaches uh, teams on how to cooperate and be productive. And my main focus was to deal with the generational gaps between different groups of generations. That that became a great friction within the workplace. So my responsibility was to learn about the generations and then share with them how to build relationships and how to work through conflict and how to have conflict resolution. And so I learned that there's three main things that, that affect a team, three things that always are at the real root of most problems. And those three things are character, competency, and chemistry. Character, competency, and chemistry. You see, if the leader doesn't have character, there's going to be issues within the team. If the leader doesn't have competence, there's going to be issues within the team. If the leader doesn't have chemistry with the team, there's going to be issues with the team. Even within the team itself, if someone isn't perceived as being competent at what they're doing, it causes friction. It causes problems. If people think this person doesn't have any character, they're a liar, they're a swindler, they cut corners, that loses respect and it hurts the team. If there's no chemistry, if the personalities clash, if there's just, and that's where the generational differences come in, um, there can be issues there. And so God has given us his word that we may deal with these different issues. And it was so interesting to me, we, we did some counseling with the, the National Organization of Nurses in Virginia, and some of the teams there were diverse in age. And you could hear a lot of the identifying factors of the, of the generations. So you have the boomers, and you have the greatest generation, World War II, those who came about during then. Then you had Generation X, which I am part of Generation X. I'm an Xer. Do you know why we're called X? Does anyone know? Have you learned this? So when the slaves were freed, many of them didn't know how to write their name, and so they would put an X, and that was their identity. They didn't really have an identity. They were kind of a, a, a new group of people, and so the, the idea is, is that we don't have any major world wars. Uh, we had Desert Storm, but no major conflicts during our time. We didn't have 9-11, and so we're identified as Generation X. And there's some unique qualities to that generation where uh, they're, they're bridge builders, but they have challenges with boomers and greatest generations. But then you get into the, the Y and the modern generation, right? The millennials. And there's a lot of challenges there. And there's a lot of conflicts. And many of us know this. And many of us, I know when I go to the gym, I always hear jokes from the older crowd about the younger crowd and from the younger crowd about the older crowd. And it's funny how we, we kind of pick certain qualities about a different group and say, well, millennials are lazy or millennials are this. And we all, and that whole group agrees on that. But that causes friction. It causes challenges. It causes issues. Uh, it reminds me of these two Christian women that were at the workplace. They were vocal about their faith. They were vocal about the fact that they were Christians. And one of them liked the room to be warm. And so she wanted the windows closed and the heat on. And the other wanted the room cold, right? And so the one woman that wanted the room warm, she's like, it's so cold in here, I'm going to die. It's just so cold in here, I'm going to die. 
I can't believe it. Why wouldn't we change the temperature in here? And the other woman who wanted the room warm, uh, she, or the other woman who wanted the room cold, she said, it's so cold, it's so hot in here. Why can't we open the windows and get it cold in here? Why can't we cool it off? And these are two Christian women, and they're going at it every single day. I don't know if you've ever worked with people that are vocal about their faith, and yet they have these kind of attitudes, and it's not the greatest reflection on us as believers, but they would fight with each other, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot. Finally, an unbeliever came and said, let's close the window, turn the heat up so the one dies, and then we'll open the window so it will cool off, and the other will die, and we'll be good to go forward. <laughs> right? Because... We, as believers, and if you're here today, my prayer is that you know Christ, you've confessed him, you believe in him, you, you've put your faith and trust that the cross paid for your sins and that your, your eternity is settled. My prayer is that everyone in this room have made that decision. If you haven't, make that today. Do that. Don't wait. Today's the day. But if you have made that decision, we as believers in Christ, we are the children of the King. We are the servants of the Lord. We should reflect conflict resolution better than any other group. We should be gifted and we should uh, live into this truth that because we are forgiven, we can forgive. We don't carry grudges. We don't carry bitterness. We don't carry all the stuff that the world seems to carry. And yet we do see this in the church, don't we? We see this challenge. We see uh, the fact that there are issues. And so today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I, I really want to see what does God want us to know about conflict resolution between believers? How are we to deal with conflict? My personal view is that if we did a good job at this, if you and I were good at conflict resolution, people would listen to the gospel. I truly believe if we learned how to forgive, how to be forgiven, and how to quickly forgive, if we live that out in our day-to-day -day life, that would be enough of a testimony for someone to say, what is different? Why do you do that? Why are you like that? What has led you to become that way? And so today, as we look at what Paul is dealing with in his time and his place, let us look at our own lives. Let us look at our church. Let us look individually and see what the Lord has to tell us. Let's precede his word in prayer and ask him to speak directly to each one of us. Father God, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Corinth church. We thank you for Paul and his amazing um, transformation as he was once totally against you and, and your people, the, those that were following you, the Christians of that day. And Lord, you radically saved him. And now he is one of your leaders. He's, he's leading your church, Lord. And he's being used by your Holy Spirit to write this letter to the Corinth church. I pray, Lord, that as we read this, that we would hear your your words to us today, that we would understand and we would receive and we'd believe and we would live the words that you gave for us to understand. And so, Lord, as we continue to, to read through this wonderful letter and we realize there's a lot of similarities between the Corinth, uh, the city, and where we are in the United States today, help us, Lord, to be uh, open and in tune. Let your Holy Spirit dictate these truths to us as well. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Protect us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Two very important contextual truths. Whenever you study God's word, you need to know the context uh, so that you can fully apply what is being uh, given to us by the Holy Spirit. So the context here, as we read today's reading, is the author uh, was an educated man. Paul was educated by Gamaliel. He was one of the uh, advanced 
students of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We were told he was very established. He understood not only Jewish law, but he understood Roman law. He recognized his, uh, what, what he had as a Roman citizen, what he, what he was uh, supposed to be given wherever he went. He was a well-trained, well-educated leader who knew what he was doing and knew what the rules and laws of his time were. He even called out the judiciary when they didn't, uh, when they didn't deal with him appropriately. He knew exactly how it was supposed to function. So Paul, the author of this book, really the Holy Spirit, the author, was well-read. He understood the concept of, of judges and lawyers and court systems. And so he's not speaking from a place of ignorance, but a place of understanding and knowledge. The other thing to understand, Romans and Greeks were known for their judiciary. They were known for their court systems. They were known for frivolous lawsuits. Uh, Pretty similar to today. They knew uh, that in their system that they would brag about how they could win so much money for a certain individual uh, based on certain lawsuits. And I thought it was interesting. Yesterday we drove back from Orlando and all the signs are, this guy made me $3 million. This guy made me, because my, my coffee was too hot or something. No. Uh, but the reality is, the reality is, is that even today, our, part of our culture, how it's established, we have a lot of Roman and Greek influence. The idea of laws and courts and how the justice system works is, is a vital and an integral part of our own day and time, our society, our community. And so as we look at this, we need to realize that this is as relevant and as applicable to us today as it was when it was written to those that heard it in its first reading. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn over to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Oops. Give you a moment as I get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to look at the first eight verses. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous? And do not stand before the saints. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you, say, if you have such matters, do your appointments and your judges, those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between the fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral people, idolaters, Males who have sex with males, nor thieves, nor greedy people, nor drunkard, nor verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And so Paul here deals with the issue of his time, which is this. Within the church, there is conflict. There is struggle. One person is questioning another person's character. One person's uh, questioning somebody's legitimacy. They're questioning whether this should have been done to me or not. Is it right or wrong? And they're not going to the church to resolve the issue. Where are they going? To the court. And what is the court built on? 
the standard of its time and place, which is godless, godless courts. And so when there was a problem in the church, they would resolve it by going to a godless court to determine what the resolution should be. Can we see the obvious issue here? And the challenge is that within the church, and, and this is just my perception, is that uh, either we just like let the stuff build up in us and we don't deal with the problems, right? And we, and we don't really confront some issues. Or at some point we go to other people and we gossip about the problem. But unfortunately, in most churches, in most instances I've participated in, we, we really struggle to do this well. And I don't think that's by chance. I think this is one of the issues, if we did it well, would glorify God in a very great and powerful manner. I think many people would be influenced if they saw the church dealing with conflict well. And so when Paul brings this up, he kind of gives a, a level of how this is. Do you not know that you're going to be judging the world? Did you know that as a believer you'll be a judge? Were you aware of that? Did you know that you'll be judging angels? That's interesting, isn't it? I, they didn't give us a lot of information, so I can't go very far into what that means. But what it does say to me is that part of life is making decisions and judgments for correction for the glory of God. That we can deal with our families and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our lives in a way that brings peace and puts us in the right direction. And that we don't, uh, we don't sweep it under the rug. We don't allow these trees of bitterness and anger to grow and become hostilities where we stop talking to each other. We stop interacting. The first thing we think when we see that person is that negative thing. That's one thing I learned in conflict resolution. Many times uh, that becomes in your mind who that person is. Their identity becomes they lied to me. They said that thing to me that I can't forgive. They bullied me. They cut a corner and, and got something I should have gotten. And in our minds, that becomes who that person is instead of how can I encourage, how can I support, I'm glad they're in my life. I, they have shown me so many things that have helped me on my path. You see, you can be a great testimony, you can be a great teacher, you can be a great uh, mentor, but if you don't resolve these issues, these issues will grow and they'll become roadblocks and they'll become walls that divide us. And they're walls that grew out because we didn't know how to deal with the conflict very well. And Jesus, it's really interesting, when he, he goes through the Lord's Prayer, uh, the only thing he reiterates at the end, if you read it in Matthew, he says, forgive at the level of you want to be forgiven. For, don't forget that if you don't forgive, how do you expect God to forgive you? Forgiveness is at the heart of the problem. Forgiveness is at the heart of, of what being a Christian is. Sins being forgiven, life having forgiveness, Christ's greatest attribute and his greatest form of love is that while we're yet sinners, he died for us to forgive us of our sins. So forgiveness is such an important part of, of being a human, but it's also such an important part of being a believer. And Paul is confronting this within the church and he's saying, um, this is a major problem because believers are letting unbelievers dictate resolutions. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing this? Am I doing this? Right? He says it's better to, to just uh, to look the other way at sometimes, but ultimately the best thing to do is to take it to the church and to take it to the Lord for reconciliation. For reconciliation. If you turn over to, to, Gen, to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us that answer. 
Jesus teaches us how to deal with disputes. This was one of the most powerful tools that I was able to give to a secular audience. This is one of the most powerful tools that you have as a believer. This is how the church is to operate. When we meet as leaders and we talk about how do we function as a church, how do we maintain a healthy church, this is at the core of what it is to be a healthy church. This is how to deal with adversity. This is how to deal with the challenges. Because the truth is, the longer we live together, the more chances are things bother us. The more chances friction occurs. Uh, like any relationship, the deeper you get together, uh, more is revealed of healing and hope that needs to occur. And so if you have your Bibles turned to, to Matthew 18, verse 15, it says this. And this is Jesus, the creator, uh, the, the master teacher. If your brother sins against you, go to him, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like the Gentile and tax collector to you. One thing to note, how are we to treat the tax collector? How are we to treat the Gentile? With love and compassion, right? It doesn't mean you turn them away and mock and ridicule. Actually, it means that we desire for them to come back into the body and to be healthy and to see them walking with the Lord again. But this, this issue is, is a very uh, open and has infiltrated everywhere, right? And one of the ways that we've, I've learned it and talked about it, it's called triangulation. I have a problem with you. You did something to me. Uh, if we could go to the next slide and the next slide after that, please. <laughs> In the issue, we go to the person that's not involved. So you do something to me, uh, and I have an issue with it. Well, I'm going to go over to someone over here, and I'm going to tell them about that thing you did to me. Now, how many people are involved in the issue? Three people. You've made a triangle. Now everything has to be resolved with three of the three, and I've pulled an outsider in unnecessarily. You see, the real problem is, and Jesus deals with it in this Matthew chapter, he says, go to the person directly and speak to them in private and let them know that the issue exists. Because you know what I found? People have had issues with me, people I've had issues with. When you begin to talk one-on-one -on -one privately with them, they said, oh, I didn't know you took it that way. Oh, I didn't know that impacted you that way. Oh, I didn't realize what I had done. Please forgive me. Now, that's not always, but that is some of the time. Some of the time is when you go directly to that person, you say, look, this, I want you to know we were in that meeting or this thing happened and, and this is how it impacted me. And it could be so many things, right? How many things in life can impact us in a negative way and cause us to have bitterness? And so you go directly to the person. Now he says, look, not every single time is the person going to receive that. Some people will say, it's not my fault. I won't, I won't change. It's your fault or whatever that outcome is. Then who are you to go to? You go to two or three of those you know walk in peace. 
Who are people in your life that are believers that walk with the Lord and you see that with almost every relationship, they are peacemakers. They are not hostile. They're not in the middle of a war or battle. They do not gossip. They do not slander. They are people of integrity and character that you can go to them and say, uh, this is my issue. Whether it's your deacon, your, your teacher, uh, the pastor, whoever it is, that person you trust. And you say, here's the situation. And now two or three of you goes privately. This is not social media. This is not share with your family. This is not share with your coworkers. This is not let the whole world know. Because every time we add someone into the equation, that equation becomes harder to solve. Did you know that? Every time you add a new person to the equation of your conflict, the more difficult it will be to solve. Because guess what? You may have resolved it with that person, but that third or fourth person in the chain never heard about that resolution. And they're carrying the anger against you as something that didn't even happen to them. This is how families stop talking to each other. This is how coworkers uh, eventually quit. This is how communities get distorted and destroyed. Because they don't initially deal with the problem at the heart of the problem. And very quickly, like a virus, it spreads to all of these other hosts that should have had nothing to do with the actual issue at hand. And so Jesus is very clear. Go directly in private. If, they don't, if that doesn't re- resolve it, realize the danger of this spreading and how that really won't solve your problem. It's not going to solve your problem if 100 people know you have a problem. Right? And the truth is, you you can live your life and you may enjoy the victim mentality. You may enjoy how people treat you. But in the end, that is not the life God has for you. That is not abundant life. That is not pure life. That is not life that, that the joy that passes all understanding kind of life. And if you want the life that Christ has for you, it's a life of peace where you have forgiven and you're giving forgiveness. And it starts with who do I go to when I have a problem? I need to go directly to the person. If they don't respond, then I get wise counsel and we go to the person and we give them every possible chance to say their side and to come to a place of reconciliation. If that does not occur, then you're to pray and fast for them as if they were lost but also make some decisions and say, if you intentionally choose that you will not confess this sin, then you can no longer uh, participate in the way that you did before. It's called church discipline. And without church discipline, uh, like any place, with a, a country with no rules, no regulations, a game with no rules or regulations, when it, it becomes anarchy and it defuses the mission, it defuses the purpose. And that's why this is so essential to us to talk about. It's so essential for Paul to put in the, the letter to the Corinth church. Because remember, the Corinth church is in a place where sin runs the place. It's abundant. And so how many conflicts are occurring? In the chapter before this, remember, he dealt with uh, sexual misconduct. How do you deal with sexual misconduct within the church? How do you deal with issues within the church? You go directly to the person. And the problem is in, in our culture, in our world today, especially in the United States, most churches triangulate. Most Christians triangulate. And when you triangulate, you strangle your testimony. You strangle the gospel. You may get some relief because you're able to vent a problem, but with that came a great cost. The cost of being able to reconcile a brother or sister back into right relationship. 
I believe the young people, I believe the next generation, when you look at generations, are looking for these kind of answers. Because the world is broken in so many ways here. So many distrust, so much anger, so much hostility. And it's, and it's not something you can avoid. You can't be happy when your life is full of anger. So even if you go to the funnest places and do the funnest things, there's still this cloud hanging over you. This is the joy of the salvation that Christ gives us. This is the peace that passes all understanding. This is the establishment of God's kingdom. What we need to recognize is in heaven, we're no longer going to be bitter towards each other. You're not going to be angry at your neighbor. You're not going to be angry at your boss. Because heaven is where we're headed, the home of God, the perfect place. He's preparing us for that. And so as believers, we are called to live as if we're there. And that means when I am offended or something is done to me, I need to deal with it the way Christ the King tells me to deal with it. Go directly to the person. Try to bring reconciliation. Don't be bullied. I'm not saying you enable the person, especially if it's some sort of abuse, that you go to the appropriate places. But there's a way to do these things that brings healing and hope. The reality is when you win a brother or sister over in the middle of a conflict, you're that much closer to them. I can remember when I was a high school student and we moved, my dad moved and he got a new church and I met this guy named Keith West and the first thing he did was put me in a chokehold. <laughs> and, and I fainted from the chokehold. Do you know him and I became best friends? Because we had this battle, right? And we, we, we gained respect with each other. But the reality is, is that in many things in life, we grow closer together when we have conflict resolution. Not when we pretend everything's perfect all the time, there's no problems. Christ didn't say, pretend like everything is okay. He said, bring it to me so I can bring healing and hope. So I can bring resolution. And maybe sometimes the other person in the party doesn't want the resolution. But you'll get the resolution from Christ. You'll get the peace. And that's what I want. And I hope that's what you want. That you want the peace of Christ in your life. You don't want to live lives of regret and bitterness and guilt. Those are places. Those are, are places you don't want to live your life in. Christ gives us victory over those places. Christ gives us guidance, and he gives us wisdom, and he gives us direction. So we need to not triangulate. Go directly to the source for reconciliation and accountability. And then finally, at the end of the verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. This is beautiful. Here's what he says. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. We were washed. What does that mean? That means your sin has been washed white as snow. It means your past sin has been washed clean. You are no longer under the consequence of that sin, which is separation from God in hell. You have been washed of your sin. You've been expunged. That is a word used in courts. That means uh, it's even a more powerful word than you've been cleaned. You've been expunged of your past sin. You've been washed of your present sin. And you will be washed in the end to come. You have been set free. The cross is the most powerful washing element of sin that there is. And when you use it by receiving it, it washes your past. It washes your present. And it takes care of your future. 
And you recognize this and and you realize when I confess, when I confess before Jesus that he is Lord and that, uh, that God rose him from the grave, that means I'm confessing his cross is cleaning me and washing me completely clean so that I am no longer guilty before a perfect and holy God. And so when I'm washed and I lived a washed life, my desire is that other people would be washed. And if I keep holding things against people and I keep getting into conflict and I'm taking people to court all the time, whether it's in the physical world's court or in the court of my heart, and I am the judge and I am the jury and I'm the executioner. If I continually do that every single day of my life, I cannot live a washed life. If I'm washed then I want others to be washed. I want the living water that flows into me to flow into others that they may be cleansed. I cannot be washed and want others to be dirty. I cannot be washed and say, thanks for washing me, Jesus, but I refuse to give any grace or forgiveness to this person. Conflict resolution starts with the realization that I have been washed from my sins. I am no longer under the punishment of sin. I'm no longer separated from the, from the creator and his home. You're sanctified. You've been set apart. Sanctified meaning set apart for holy work. You are sanctified every single day like a potter that Christ is, is molding and shaping. And part of that molding and shaping isn't, I'm gonna give you everything you ever wanted. No, I'm going to teach you how to forgive when it's hard. I'm going to teach you conflict resolution. I'm going to teach you how to teach your children and your grandchildren. I'm going to teach you how to be an example in front of your coworkers. I'm going to teach you how to be gracious and forgiving and and, and being willing to be humble in front of the people that judge you and then they judge me. Sanctified. You have been set apart from the world so that the world knows there's a difference. If you look like the world and you sound like the world and you act like the world, when it comes to conflict resolution, then it's going to be really tough for them to see you as sanctified. Am I sanctified? Am I being set apart every day? If someone were to evaluate my life, would they say, Mike, you live your life for the Lord as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. You are, I see the, the hand of sanctification of Christ in your life. When someone looks at you and they were to judge your Monday through Saturday, do they see a sanctified life? Do they see someone set apart for the good work of God, that he is working in your life and he is shaping you and molding you so that you will reflect him? One of the most important areas of your life he's going to deal with are the conflicts in your life. Because guess what? Once this life's over, all those conflicts are over. This is the only time he can mold you dealing with conflict. And so we need to receive that and and realize that this is the the active work of the Father in our lives. Conflict resolution, conflict in its sense, is God allowing something into our life that can mold us and shape us to be more like him. He had a great conflict with us. It's called we sinned against him. And we were separated. He is perfect. We are unholy and unjust. How then can we come together ever? And he resolved it. How did God resolve? How did he deal with conflict resolution? He said, guess what? I'm going to go to earth. I'm going to live a perfect life. And I'm going to resolve the conflict for you. And all you have to do is repent and believe that I have resolved the conflict of sin in your life. 
Once you believe that, you become sanctified. And then you're justified. Just as if you've never sinned. You've been justified. This is a court term. You, you're, you're expunged. You're cleared. You are just in the sight of God's holy court. You've been justified. Your sin has been separated as far as the east is from the west. You are free to go. You're a free man. Jesus gives the example of a, of a man that, that owed millions and millions of dollars. And, and the, the Lord of that time, the judge of that time said, all right, I will forgive you of this great amount. I will forgive you of this great amount. And that same guy went back home and he had some people that worked for him. And one of the guys had a great debt to him, but it wasn't very much comparatively, maybe hundreds of dollars. And he said to that guy, you better pay me back or you're going to go to jail. How dare you not pay me back? How dare you not do what you promised? That same man was taken before the great judge. And he says, how dare you? How dare you hold this small amount of debt against this person when I just expunged you of all of this millions of dollars of debt that you had to me? And Jesus says, this is the example of your life. If I've died for all of your sins, how can you not forgive? If I have set you free from an eternity separated from me in hell, how then can you not forgive them of this act in your life? All of this boils down to this. When it comes to conflict resolution, when it comes to dealing with problems as a believer, as it comes to our church, how do we function and how, we, how do we work together? The question is this, what did Jesus pay for? Right? Yes. Many of you know you pay for something, you want to get what you paid for. Right? right? If you paid for it, you want to get what you paid for. What did Jesus pay for? What did Jesus pay for? He paid to set you free that you may be his. He paid for you. And when you become his, then you recognize the importance of how you deal with conflict. Because a lot of times in churches, we talk of platitudes. We talk about eternal things and, and, and all these big fluffy words that I think are good. But sometimes we don't get in the specifics of what this really means. Being a believer means in my day-to-day -day life, I'm good at conflict resolution. I'm a humble servant that knows how to ask and give forgiveness. I know how to approach a person in the appropriate way, in the appropriate manner. I know to go directly to the person. I know how uh, to show grace and mercy and to allow the Holy Spirit to work through me in times of conflict. I become a peacemaker. I become known as a peacemaker. This is why this is so vitally important. This is what Christ paid for. And this is what he desires. This is what he expects of his children. When I say that he is my savior, then I say that he is my Lord. He says, if I'm your Lord, then this is how you are to live. And it's not just the easy parts of life. It's not just the fun parts of life. It's not just the comfortable, secure parts of life. It's the tough parts of life. Yeah. It's the hard days and the hard relationships and the hard situations that maybe you had no control over. You're still called to ask the Holy Spirit for guidance and wisdom. You're still called to be quick to forgive and slow to anger. You're still called to love above your own love for yourself. 
that you would be the greatest example to Christ in anyone else's life. And so as we look at this and and we recognize this, some questions arise for us to consider. How should conflict be resolved between believers and why? How would you respond today if you were asked that question? How should conflict be resolved between believers? Why? Who should be involved in conflict resolution in your life? The next conflict, the conflict you're already in. Who should be involved? Are there people involved that should not be involved? Are there parties that now have to be dealt with that shouldn't have had to be dealt with? Why is conflict so important in the church? Why is conflict resolution so important in the church? And then finally, how do you plan on dealing with your next conflict? James says a lot of times we read God's word and it's this mirror and it shows us some stuff about ourselves and some of it's good and some of it needs to change. And we look at this mirror and some people look at it and walk away and don't ever change. They say, yeah, I see it. Yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, it's there. And yet walk away and do nothing. You see, today is a day of motivation. Today is a day of challenge. Tomorrow is the day of action. Tonight is the day of action. Once you leave this place and go for lunch, action begins. What will I do when the Lord puts me in a position where conflict resolution needs to occur? How will I live my minutes, my hours, my days, my months, and my years? What will that dash between my birth and death really mean? Do you live the words that God is giving us? Because they are the words of life. And more than anything else, I think I don't exist for me. You don't exist for you. If we were to look at our culture, our town, our friends, our family, our schools, our businesses, is conflict a problem? Is how conflict is dealt with a problem? So who's going to answer that problem? Who's going to bring restoration and resolution? Who's going to bring light into darkness? Is the world going to solve its own problems? Is the lost going to see its way through? Or were you created to be the light of the world and the salt of the world and God expects you and I to enter in and bring reconciliation and hope and peace? Because there's only one place of peace, the Prince of Peace. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. There's only one who can truly bring conflict resolution. So what is, this, what is this mirror telling us? How do we apply this? First, I would say confess sin quickly. If you have sin today that's unconfessed, confess it. Get it out of your life. It's not your friend. Don't hold on to you, onto it. It's the greatest enemy you have, whether that's unforgiveness, whatever that sin is, bitterness, Hatred, anger, whatever it is, confess it. Give it to the Lord and say, I know I need victory. I need your help. I need your movement in my life. I need peace in this place of my life. Thank God for the patience and forgiveness he's given you. Do you know what one of the greatest medicines in all of life is? Is a heart of gratitude. It's better than any pharmaceutical medicine you can get is a thankful heart. Are you thankful that God is patient and forgiving to you, that he has a a love for you where he never gives up, he continues to pursue? It is us who walk away, not him. And so today, do we recognize the patience and are we grateful for the forgiveness? 
Do not triangulate. Make a plan. Make a decision. I will go directly to the point of my issue. I will not spread this to my friends and family, to my closest uh, friend that I, that I tell everything. I need to get it right. Let it be a testimony of God's glory, uh, not a condemnation of somebody. Let it be a, a story of victory, not an not a ongoing defeat. Don't triangulate. Don't bring people into your problem that shouldn't be there. We all are going to have problems. We're all going to have issues. All of us are going to have all issues all the time. This is how life is in a sin-cursed world, in a sin-broken world. How we deal with them matters. What we do is so important. Make a plan on how you will deal with conflict. Write it in a journal. Put it somewhere where you'll be reminded. When the next conflict arises, how will I deal with this? Plan. Make a decision. Say, this is who I am. This is what Christ paid for. This is Christ in me. This is the Holy Spirit working. He wants me to be intentional. He wants me to pursue him in all areas of my life. And then finally, do the best of your ability to live at peace with everyone. To the best of your ability, try to live at peace with everyone. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you on how to do that, listen to the Holy Spirit. But much of that is forgiveness, being forgiven, offering forgiveness, and then moving on in life, not trying to be the judge, not trying to be the jury, not trying to be the executioner, but just being the witness of what a good God can do in your life. Can we do that together? Can we just witness day to day the wonders of God's love? Can we be witnesses to what salvation brings? Can we be witnesses to the power of God in a life and how that changes everything for everyone? So finally, what is God telling you? What is the Holy Spirit of God who created all there is that knows you better than you know you? What is he saying to you now? What is he stirring in your heart? What is he stirring in your soul? What is he saying to you specifically? Whatever it is, as we pray, these are the moments to receive it, embrace it, and then act on it. Whatever it is. This is a beautiful thing that we can gather freely to do this so that we can be so intentional about saying, God, talk to me today. God, show me something today. Teach me who you are and who I am Amen. and what I can be as your child. Amen.